This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Howdy, partner. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations of disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. So, there are all kinds of advocacy within the disability community. Self-advocacy is one unique type that's grounded in a movement, history, and communities of people. Today, we're going to explore what self-advocacy is with two people who identify as self-advocates, Dor Pervez and Finn Gardner. Yoshir Dor and Finn talked about how they first learned about the self-advocacy movement and what it means to them to be self-advocates. Are you ready? Away we go. Okay, so, uh, Finn and Dora, I am just so delighted to have you on my podcast today. Yay, I'm, I'm glad to be here too. Yay. Wonderful. So, uh, why don't I have you both introduce yourselves? And, uh, Finn, do you want to go first at that door? Okay, so hi, my name is Finn Gardner, and I am a disability advocate and activist and researcher. Um, I currently work for the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network as the um, policy fellow, and I am also a research associate at the Lurie Institute for Disability Policy at the Heller School for Social Policy and, and Management at um, Brandeis University. And um, my work at both ASAN and um, and it, and Lurie um, focuses on um, community living for people with disabilities, community inclusion, including issues like inclusive parenting services or accessibility in general or education, et cetera. So my work is very much influenced by the importance of making sure that people with disabilities are fully integrated in the community as we deserve to be, because we are people and deserve to have access to everyone else around us. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Nora, please go ahead. Sure. Hey, I'm Noor. I am the Accessibility Director for Majdad al-Rabia, and I am the Community Engagement Coordinator for ASAN. Um, I am a disability rights advocate, a queer Muslim, and very excited to be here. Um, a lot of my work centers around, um, like Finn, the kind of intersection of community integration and community living, but also um, the intersection of disability, race, religion, and everything in between. Um, and as a community engagement person, it's really, in my mind, my job to kind of try and build bridges for the various identities within the autistic community that haven't really had their fair space or share of representation. First question is for you know both of you is up uh, you know when did you first hear about the self advocacy movement 
And what did you first try to start identifying as a self-advocate? Oh boy, that's a fun one for me because... (laughs) Okay, so I don't know if I've told you this story or not, but I didn't actually like get anything resembling a diagnosis until I was like well into college, like my sophomore year or so. So I didn't really have access to a lot of the language around self-advocacy and disability until I was a lot older. Um, But um, what I didn't realize, even until pretty recently, I would say, is that um, I was, I'd say that if I had the language, I probably would be identifying as a self-advocate from a relatively young age, like six or seven years old, um, because I was a nonverbal child and I was a very, like, strongly self-identified, like, I'm a person who does not talk. I do not want to talk. I don't really see the point. I don't like engaging with people. I think that they're not really on my same level. They're not on my page. And I from a very young age was like very firm with my family. Like if they tried to push me into speaking, I'd go, I just kind of like in whatever manner I could indicate, no, I'm not doing that. I don't want to. Same way with my school. I would indicate if if my teachers were constantly calling on me or trying to push me to like socialize with people I didn't want to. No, I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to. And it ended up being that like pretty much from childhood up until college like I had this constant system of going like I know what the rules are I understand what you want me to do but if they're a violation of my rights or what makes me feel safe then I'm going to push back and I feel like that's not the entirety of what self-advocacy is obviously but it's definitely a cornerstone it's knowing where your boundaries are and being willing to kind of push back and find where you fit. Um, I would say that, like, the first time I actually identified as a self-advocate was probably around the start of college. Um, I was one of those kids who always had, like, some form of, like, leadership role or officership from, like, I think age 12 or so, but... I never really thought of it as anything more than something that you just kind of had to do until that point. Um, Around college, I got recruited um, like towards the end of my senior year to work with um, a new LGBT advocacy group on campus. Um, And they were focused on trying to promote better LGBT policy and I was kind of just like, eh, I don't really know if I'm like up up for it. It's this entirely new scenario. I don't know anyone. But, you know, I went in and I ended up really liking it. And I realized fairly quickly, like, when students pushed the administration for things that we specifically knew would benefit our lives or the lives of students that were LGBT, that things could get significantly better. And it was at that point that I was kind of like, okay, so when we advocate for ourselves, we get what we need. And at that point, I think I pretty strongly identified as a self-advocate. And then once I ended up going to ACI my, I think, sophomore, junior year of college. Um, Did you know uh, what ACI, ACI stands for? Oh, yeah. Um, ACI stands for the Autism Campus Initiative. Or Sorry, Finn, can you correct me? 
Autism campus inclusion. Inclusion. There we go. Thank you. I always get it m- mashed up with another program we had on my campus. Thank you. Autism Campus Inclusion Summit. And I ended up going there um, my like towards the middle end-ish of college. And at that point, I learned that like self-advocacy actually had this entire like nuanced history within the disability community and any doubt that I really had about whether or not I really belonged in the autistic community kind of disappeared. And I was just like, okay. So like there are people who walk and talk and sound like me. There are people who have similar experiences. Okay, cool. I might not have ever seen myself here, but I belong here. (laughs) And I feel like that was kind of when I totally crystallized and was like, yep, nope, self-advocate in addition to everything else. Great. Thank you for that, Gar. What do you think? Well, I didn't really see myself as a self-advocate necessarily until my late teens or early 20s, at least not with um, disability in a strict sense. Though I think I've always had, like, nor a um, strong tendency towards wanting to advocate for myself and for civil rights in general. Like, I always remember being very justice-minded and focused on fairness and equity. And, like, I would remember seeing... I remember being frustrated, for example, if I saw, like, boys being favored over girls or seeing people making racist comments. Um, I, like, actively, I was one of those kids, like, I remember being, like, 11 and, like, actively reading stuff about (laughs) depressing social issues like youth and the juvenile justice system or homelessness. And I remember talking to my school counselors and trying to change classes to things that worked better for me, whether it was to give me more of a challenge or to work with teachers who were less rigid and more willing to listen to me. Um, So I did have a strong tendency towards um, self-advocacy, and I was diagnosed at a young age. Um, I was diagnosed as autistic before starting school, which was really unusual at the time because I'm in my um, 30s. And it was very rare for especially black kids to be diagnosed at a young age, but I was. And I did not develop a positive attitude towards having a disability or at least a neutral attitude until later on. But I still had, um, I still did try to advocate for myself in other contexts. So I felt more led towards disability self-advocacy when I was like 19 and um, got involved with the online autistic community. Um, a lot of the forums like had like Asperger in the name, though there were people there who advocated for a more inclusive definition of neurodiversity. I remember coming across sites like um, I remember coming across sites like um, autistics.org, which was um, still being updated actively at the time. Um, it was run by. Um, Mel Bags and I think Laura Tisanchik, or I'm, I'm not sure how she pronounces her name, but um, and a few other people. But Autistics.org was um, kind of a revelation for me. There was um, discussion of the whole range of the autistic spectrum encapsulated on that website, and there was not there was not a focus on functioning labels. There was not this division that I had seen elsewhere in the community. And there were these articles that I really resonated with me. Um, and there was also a lot going on on the um, live journal, which was, you know, very web 1.0 social media before Facebook and Tumblr. But live journal was where a lot of autistic activists were hanging out at the time. And um, while a lot of us hung out in a computer, um, we were hanging out. Most of us were in this community called Asperger, 
despite many of us not identifying with the Asperger's label because um, because the account called autism was primarily dominated by parents. But yeah, so despite the name, there's a lot of autistic organization going on. And all of this was before the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network was founded. This was like 2005, about a year before it was founded. But that's when I first really got involved in, I guess, the self-advocacy movement that was mostly online that I was doing it. And then... Um, I got more involved with groups in person in my mid-20s or so. Um, I got involved with the um, local Boston chapter of ASAN after having moved to Boston from San Francisco. And um, I got involved in our chapter. Then I also, like Noor, um, did ACI, though I was in the 2013 cohort. You know, I'm really curious about, you know, a lot of people use the word self-advocate, uh, their self-advocacy, but I was wondering what does it be to you personally to, to be a self-advocate in your everyday life? Oh boy, yes, I have many feelings about this. <laughs> okay, so I think we follow each other on Twitter, yeah? Yep, yep. Yeah, so you've seen the, just like, Corp- incorporeal mass of just like <laughs> day-to-day anti-ableism tweets that I end up creating on my feed just about the everyday issues I run into with everything from the non-ending stream of airports being like terrible at basic accessibility that they're legally required to have to like inaccessible restrooms and all of that fun stuff. Arg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my reaction. Airports are the worst. The worst. Like, I've—I don't think I've actually had like a good flight since getting mobility aids, unless I haven't brought my mobility aids, and sometimes not even then. Um, to me, self-advocacy is not being afraid to when you see something wrong or when something's going wrong that's harmful to you or that isn't necessarily directly harmful to you immediately, but some days could be, or if it's something that is harmful enough to you that you know could hurt other people, it's standing up and saying, no, this is a thing that shouldn't be happening right now. That's part of why I make it such a big thing every time airports are inaccessible in particular, because like there's, I figure like if you hit a critical mass on people complaining about something people see it and people think about it. And when enough people are standing up for themselves individually, I feel like you kind of hit this critical mass where either an algorithm or an individual person or a journalist, someone will start taking notice. And even if that doesn't necessarily change things on its own, if there's a longstanding tradition of it, things move. When you put enough weight behind a boulder, eventually it tumbles. It's just a matter of how long. Yeah, I tend to tweet, like, I tend to tweet every time an airport messes me around in some way. Same, TBH. (laughs) Because, like, how, because they don't care if you DM them, they don't really care if you talk to their help desk, but if you get a few hundred people angry at them, then something's gonna move. Oh, and the security line can also be awful. Oh my god, yes, the worst. Like, even 
just like I get wheelchair assistance most of the time, but the thing is they never like, it doesn't matter if I've reserved it in advance or not. They never know that you're coming there with wheelchair assistance. They never actually somehow, if I bring my chair, know how to use any chair. That's not the airport chair. Like I have a chair that converts into a roll that converts into that's a transfer chair that converts into a roller. And to avoid confusing them, I had it in a transfer chair mode the entire time I was at the airport. And they still had someone who was saying it was, quote, illegal for them to move me in any way because it could theoretically at some point be a roller. It's the exact and it, it like it's the exact same format of chair that they have at the airport is the worst part of it. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. guys. <laughs> and like the thing that was hilarious too was that they very clearly had never had someone they either hadn't had or were very bad or had had and were just very bad at this, had someone bring their own mobility equipment before the last time I brought my roller on when I was still using a roller. And they were just like, well, you have to sit on an airport chair. And I was like, okay, are you going to let, okay, then how are you going to get my roller down there? And they were like, uh, you have to check it. And I was like, no, it's illegal to tell me that I have to check it. And they were just like, oh, well, you have to gate check it. And I was like, also illegal. And they were just like, well, fine. What do you want us to do? And I'm like, take me down on my transfer chair or else find someone to drag it down with us. <laughs> And I guess that would count as another instance of self-advocacy on a daily level. It's just like the constant need to make space for yourself in a world that is just not built for you. Both of you have talked about social media and, you know, I follow both of you on Twitter and, you know, I've I learned a lot from you both, and also, you know, so many other people uh, who are self-advocates, and, you know, the autistic Twitter, like, is incredibly uh, strong. So I was wondering, like, what both of you think in terms of the the role of social media in, like, giving a platform or space for a lot of self-advocates to just, like, you know, share their lives and share what what it means to be a self-advocate. I think it has a lot of power in ways that you would expect, but also in ways that you might not. In ways that I would expect, I would say it's definitely improved things in that a broader range of people are contributing their opinions. You see a lot more autistic people of color, a lot more autistic people with multiple disabilities contributing. Like a lot, I see more autistic people of color there than I will on literally just any autistic, just mass media campaign for the most part. I mean, other than ours. (laughs) Seriously. I see so many more black and brown and um, other autistic folks of color there. And that's a revelation because I see so like, I feel like the autistic advocacy movement is so white dominated and it's depressing because people of color are so underdiagnosed in our community. It's very true. And I would say the thing that makes me happy about that is that like, it shows that we are there and it's, if people think to look for it, like if I in college had the word autistic and that's a luxury that a lot of us don't have, but if I'd had the word autistic or if I 
had that word and thought that I might be, and I somehow found autistic Twitter, I feel like I would have been a lot less lonely than I was. But also, like, you have to have that word to get there. Yeah. Like, I knew, like, I re- like I was diagnosed at a young age. Again, um, I was diagnosed, like, at, you know, in preschool. But I still did not have an autistic community until I was an adult. And... I found, like, of course, you know, I'm like, I was like hanging out in like live journal places like that too. But I feel like finding that racial diversity was not a thing that I found really until Twitter, because even on the, even on like Facebook and Tumblr, I found that a lot of the autistic community there was extremely white. Yeah, I found that too when I was first trying to kind of get my footing. Tumblr in particular, that surprised me because Tumblr. I feel like I associated with diversity so much at well at the time before you know the great adpocalypse, but um, <laughs> but like aside from everyone there being extremely LGBT, I it, everyone was white and it was distressing. <laughs> yeah, I found it was queer friendly, but um, I feel like the discussions about autism and race were not really happening there. Um, yeah, and they weren't nuanced when they were happening. <laughs> yeah, I feel like. Um, there were only a few people talking about it. Um, and even now I feel like it's only like a few autistic people of color consistently being amplified on social media. Oh God. Yes. Okay. That was the other thing I was going to talk about the bad thing or the ways that you might not expect social media to get weird around this, the algorithm and the fact that (laughs) yeah, algorithms much like people And there's whole ranges of tech theory that explain this, but the basic concept that, like, if a racist programs a machine, it's going to come out racist. And I think that has really strong unintended ramifications here because, like, it's a numbers game and it's a biases game that are kind of fueled by the algorithm. And that has the potential to kind of raise some voices, namely white voices and cis voices... So what do you love about uh, being part of the self-advocacy community? And what do you take pride in as a self-advocate? So I would say what I take a lot of pride in is definitely like there's a strong sense of heritage in the self-advocacy community, I feel, um, particularly with regard to the fact that like um, that the self-advocacy movement has its roots in people in institutions and particularly people with intellectual disabilities standing up and fighting back. And there's this very strong sense of like things getting better intentionally through the work that individual people are doing. Um, And I think that there's very much this sense of like, there's a tangible sense of like, oh, well, 10 years ago, um, the people who are older than me would have fewer would have fewer tangible rights to, for example, public transportation or to um, certain um, access rules around different parts of life. Like there's a very strong sense between generations of like 
degrees of freedom in the world. And I feel like there's a very strong sense of respect for that within our community. And there's very much a sense of like, we know where we've been. Well, I think there's a lot of mutual support that I found from other self-advocates, um, whether they're autistic self-advocates or um, people with other disabilities. Um, I feel that just having that community of people who can empathize with um, your experiences, who understand that, you know, that understand what you've gone through. Um, you realize you're not alone. You realize that, hey, I'm not the only person who's had to argue with airlines to um, have them treat me right. Um, you know, I'm not the only person who's had to deal with overwhelming environments where I just get overloaded and want to shut down. And that is really vital. Um, I also like the fact that we have started to organize more actively and come together as a community. And there are increased efforts for different um, self-advocacy communities to connect with one another. For example, um, autistic people and um some of the intellectual disability advocacy groups or um, people with cerebral palsy, et cetera, or people with all three or Down syndrome. Um, I mean, I don't think it's perfect, but I do think that we have made a lot of progress in the past couple of years. And that is something I am very proud to see because we used to be more atomized. We used to be more separate. Um, especially in the autistic community, there were these people, these Aspie supremacists, um, who would often go, oh, we're not like those autistic people who have intellectual disabilities and can't work and have the high support needs. And of course, that's nonsense. We're all autistic here. We all have disabilities. It does not matter what our support needs are. We are, I mean, obviously our support needs matter in, you know, because we need different kinds of help. But I mean, our value is not based on our support needs or IQ scores or any of that. Um, our value comes from being human. And I feel that the autistic advocacy community has become more aware of that. Um, when I got involved years ago, I remember a lot of people going on about, oh, well, I'm high functioning and I don't want to be limped in with those people, which is nonsense. We are all in this together. So, you know, I'm curious about what your vision is for the future of self-advocacy. Like, you know, what do you want and hope for future generations of self-advocates? What I want and what I hope is that it gets broader and more diverse. I want more voices that are a unique blend of things rather than just, oh, well, we have one person of color on, on this board, on this panel, on X, Y, or Z, so clearly we've had enough. We've met our diversity quotient. Like, no, I really, my hope is that we recognize that the vision we have currently of self-advocacy, by virtue of it being part of the larger disability community, is going to be incredibly white, is going to be incredibly cis, is going to be incredibly straight, and that the only way we break free of that is by truly meaningfully platforming as many diverse voices as we can so that 
both the algorithm itself and the people who are creating it are the people who should have been at the table in the first place, which is to say all of us, and especially those of us who have been left behind. Um, I think that the way we shape self-advocacy and the way that we make it meaningfully available to more people is that. It's by making the voices that we platform, the voices that we pay attention to and listen to are there and available for more people. And as a result, more voices can be processed and understood. And that ultimately we can teach more people how to advocate for themselves by teaching them that they exist and that they have a right to the same freedom and availability of just quality of life and existence as every single other disabled person. Thank you for that, Dora. So what is the future of self-advocacy? Well, for one, I'd like to see more racial, cultural, et cetera, diversity. I feel like, as I said before, and as Noor said, um, the disability self-advocacy community is incredibly white dominated. And I feel that for us to make real substantive change, we need to have people of um, people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds because you can't just you can't just assume that the experiences of say white people with disabilities, people with IDD, is the same are the same as um, those of us who are people of color, who are black, Latino, Asian, um, indigenous, um, Middle Eastern, etc. I feel like there needs to be space for all different kinds of voices with all different cultural backgrounds. We also need more class diversity. We need more educational diversity. We need um, to have people with intellectual disabilities at the table. We need to have people with complex support needs at the table. We need to hear from everyone because we are not a monolithic community. We do not all have the same experiences and our advocacy needs to reflect that. Um, The last thing I wanted to add about self-advocacy is that it doesn't have to be this huge performance if you don't want it to or if you don't have the energy to do that. Self-advocacy can be as simple as talking to um, talking to your boss um, to make something, you know, maybe to lower the lighting in your office or asking somebody to do an image description. You can do self-advocacy as much. Anybody can do self-advocacy. Self-advocacy can be, can be pointing to something that you know is going to make whatever you want to do more accessible. It's talking to people about your disability. It's any number of things. I mean, of course, if you want to crawl up the White House steps or the Capitol Hill steps or, uh, you know, get arrested in senators' offices, that's another form of self-advocacy. There are a lot of different kinds of self-advocacy, and there is room for all of us to do it. That's excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us on, too. Thank you so much. of the Disability and Visibility Project, an online community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. All episodes including text transcripts are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Feed and Door's work on our website. 
The audio producer for this episode is Geraldine Asu. The introduction by Latif McLeod. The music by Loser Sports Jam. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. You can also support our podcast for a dollar a month or more by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp. Well, thanks for listening. Yeah, see you on the internet. Bye! Stop, drop, dance off.